Good to be with you this morning. Again, continue to miss seeing you face to face like that. Please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. That's right. We're in the book of Galatians if you weren't with us last Sunday. We're in Galatians. We've come as far as verse 11. Such an important book, one of the earliest epistles writings from Paul that we have, roughly dated around 80, 48 in that area. And one of the first things that Paul has to deal with as he's writing to this church in Galatia, modern day, you know, Asia Minor, you know, or sorry, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Yeah, we'll get it right. Forgive me. Um, is the fact that already Judaizers and men have come in that decided that, again, because of their Jewish roots and can I say rituals or traditions, decided that they were going to um, make it Jesus plus something. Now, we, we've talked about this on several occasions when we're together, you know. Whenever you take Jesus plus something, you, you've gone from relationship to religion. And I, I just say it simply because when you think about it, you might have a relationship with your mother, father, your son or daughter, maybe a grandmother, grandfather, friend. You know, when you have that relationship, it's not, well, my relationship with that friend is based on somebody else in your family or somebody else you know or some other coworker. You might have met that person through someone else. You might have been introduced to Christ through someone else. But your relationship with Jesus is now you and Jesus, right? It's not you and Jesus and then let's add some rituals or traditions, does that make it a little bit more clear when we think about it? And, and really the, the aspect of a different, remember in verse 6, was not one of the same kind. Much like a dog or a wolf are of the same kind. Certainly not the same thing as a cat, right? A feline. They're of a different kind. So <clears throat> Paul has been speaking to them in verse 6 saying, why so soon? Why so soon do you go after a different gospel? You know, and this idea of a different gospel is an alternative gospel. They can't have both. And it's the same thing with a relationship with Jesus. You really, it's not that, I don't want to say always, I don't want to be careful because there's a lot of denominations out there. So I want to be careful how I say this because I want to be sensitive because I, I certainly am not God, and I don't know every man's heart, but it's very difficult to have a relationship with Jesus purely when you put all of these rituals and things that you have to do, like works and everything else. It almost puts a wedge in between that beautiful relationship with you and God because you begin to think you have to do all of these things to be in admiration, right relationship with your Lord. And you never really enter into that, just that sweet place with God. I don't know, maybe somebody this morning is hearing this for the first time, really thinking about it and wondering, well, how do I press in deeper to my first love? Well, the answer is very simple. It's always been through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You turn around and you let all these other things around you, you lower them and you let them go. And you just let Jesus know you love him and he's the most important thing in your life. You know, you do that, then you have a, a beautiful, pure, genuine relationship. Nothing else gets in the way. 
Let's pray this morning that we all have a relationship like that, and then we'll begin in verse 11. But do you begin to see Paul's heart here? That's Paul's heart. He's a good pastor. He's a good father to these children in Galatia. He really loves them. Father, if Jesus just, as you've overheard, Lord, that's what we want. That's what I want, Lord. I just want you, Jesus. We all want you, more of you. Lord, all the things we go through, the sufferings, the tribulations, the difficulties, Lord, even the joy and great, wonderful things that happen, Lord, they all culminate in who you are and our ability to answer that question, who is Jesus? Lord, I thank you that those that call upon you as Lord and Savior, friend, beloved, everything. Lord, those, Lord, we are so grateful because we know what it is to be loved by the living God. We know we don't deserve it. And we know that it's a matter of grace and mercy and love. And Lord, anything else that's going to try to take away from that, any ritual or law or anything like that, that's going to just try to divide your love from us, Lord. We pray this morning it would be cast down. Thank you that we have been set free and we are truly free indeed. And there is no going back, Lord. Just as your Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us this morning through the writings of Paul, there is no going back. We never want to do that, Lord. So protect us from our own, our own intellect, Lord. That we think sometimes we have to work things or do something to earn it or somehow want to be in strive for relationship. And Lord, all that needs to be just laid down. Thank you, Jesus, that, man, I can just lay it down right now. And Lord, I'm peaced out. I'm just wrecked in you, Lord. I love you, Jesus. We love you. Now anoint your word for us this morning. Let us hear what your spirit has to say. We pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. What a way to start a morning, man. What a way to start a morning. Verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He, he had already, you know, contrasted that. Again, back to verse 6, uh, when he was talking about, again, an alternative gospel. This is in contrast to that alternative gospel. It's not according to man. If you remember, he says, I, you know, from direct revelation from Jesus Christ, right in the first few verses. Very unique that way, right? For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is incredibly unique. I can't think of too many people in Scripture that can make this same claim. I know I can't. You know, my revelation that I have of all of the things of Christ have come through other men. My pastor, you know, Pastor Scott Galton, uh, teaching the word faithfully. I came and sat and sat under the word, and, and I was forever changed through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God piercing into my heart and touching and changing me. And, you know, Pastor Scott was a willing vessel to be used, you know, as a man. But it was through a man. It wasn't directly through Christ. It was through that man that it was poured out through Christ. But Paul had a very unique experience. If you remember, look back and just, I guess we could take a few moments. Let's, let's look back into Acts chapter 9. 
Do you remember how unique Paul, Paul's calling was back then? Called by his Hebrew name, Saul. Paul is his Greek name. Look at Acts chapter 9. Then let's just read in verse 1 here. This is, this is good. It's contextual to why Paul is saying everything he's saying. He had a very unique experience. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murderers, you know, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that's Caiaphas, and he asked letters from him to the synagogues of, the, of Damascus, so that if he, would, so if he found any who were of the way, uh, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, right, without warning, a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a lot of very true statements in Scripture, and that is certainly one of the truest statements. If you've kicked against the pricks or the goads, and you've done it for a long time, you know how hard that is. I've done that, and I had nothing but blood to show for it. Just like an ox, when he kicks and rears against the pricks and the goads and the spikes that come out of that, that um you know, now we don't use them anymore, but back then they were used to create furrows, you know, to plow. So think of the plow and the spike on it, the animal kicking back his leg right in that, just cutting it up, cutting it up over and over again, blood just coming out. I mean, just, you can, I think you get the visual here. Well, this is what Jesus was saying Paul was doing, Saul was doing, right? So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is a man that Jesus Christ had his attention. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then men, and the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing nothing. They didn't see what Paul saw, but they heard it. Right? Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. I want you to think about that. He was there three days. Now, there's a disciple in Damascus. His name is Ananias. He's going to come in and care for him. He's going to be told to go and care for him, as a matter of fact. He doesn't want to go at first because he knows of Saul's reputation. But then he will go. And he will be faithful to care for Saul. If I can... Skip down to verse 15. He says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, that's an interesting calling, isn't it? What a way to be called to the ministry. What a wonderful way to be called to the ministry. For I will show him the things that I must suffer. He'll speak to kings, emperors. He does those things. Gentiles, that's the primary ministry field he's been given. Although he did minister to Jews as well, of course. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, 
the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, who came and sent me, that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He couldn't even explain it. And he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So he spent a few days there, right? But I want you to see something that, 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 that what I was talking about was so unique. Verse 20, I want you to think about this. When you and I got saved, could we tell people about who Jesus was? Yes, through our testimony. Jesus changed my life. He came into my heart. Maybe you had a, a situation where you felt a burning in your heart or something like that. Maybe, maybe you knew things were going to be different. Maybe nothing. Maybe you felt nothing different uh, physically that way or mentally even. But Saul has something astounding. Can you imagine taking all of Scripture? Now, he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, so he had studied the Old Testament. But can you imagine within three days of being taking everything you know about the Old Testament before you knew about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, now looking at that with a different lens, and now you see all of the revelation of Jesus Christ that was brought out through the Old Testament, just like those men that were on the road to Emmaus. It was all brought forward to them. It was brought forward to Paul. He now saw, he now understood. I've spent the better half of the you know, latter part of my life now, second half of my life, if I can say that at 45, first 20 years in nonsense, the last... 25 plus years or more studying the scriptures, specifically in depth in the last 10 or more years. The primary focus of my life has been to pour over the word of God, hours and hours a day, four plus hours every day at least. And I still don't feel like I know Jesus in the Old Testament the way that Paul did in three days. This was something miraculous. It was unique. It was, a, it was a divine gift from God, this revelation. This is why he was able to write to these churches with authority. Look what he says in verse 20, or it says, sorry, the Holy Spirit says, he says, immediately he preached the Christ, the Christ, the definite article, the Savior, the Lord, the Christ, in the synagogues, he is the Son of God. What does that mean? He did. And you can turn back to Galatians here. That means he went in the synagogues. You didn't just walk into the synagogue. It's not like today where you got, you know, 80% of these churches out there today where you walk in and you don't even open a Bible anymore. They walk in and they'll give a topical teaching. You, you get a one-verse deal. That was never biblical. I'm not saying there's not a time or place for topical studies, but that was never scriptural. We never saw anything like that in history. We have no example of that in history. Jesus Christ came himself. He went into a synagogue. He opened the scrolls of Isaiah. They opened the Bible. They would have a teaching, an exegesis, directly from the Word of God that would go out. And after that time, they would then turn around and then there would be application given. But for the first half of synagogue, it was all just reading of the word, the washing of the mind. It's, it's what we do in Calvary chapels, friends. It's nothing new to us, but, but we have to be careful. We take this for granted. We think this is normal because it's, for some of us, it's all we've known. 
Or maybe for some of us, it's all we want to know. Jesus and him crucified. But, you know, Paul goes into a synagogue with all of these leaders, and here he is a Pharisee. And they expect a particular teaching to come out of this synagogue in Damascus because he's a, you know, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the 70 leaders of Israel that way. And he turns around and he opens up and he starts reading. I don't know what scroll he was reading from. We're not told, but it was scripture. And whatever scripture he went through after about 20 minutes or whatever time it was, he looked up and he began to talk about Jesus. And he turned around and said, did you see Jesus Messiah there? That's Jesus the Christ, the Lord, the definite article. That's what happened before us. That's what we read here. None of us. I don't know of anybody that's done that. I know of no other pastor that's had that experience that had a direct revelation, fell down on the ground like that, received it three days later, walks into a synagogue, reads the Old Testament in the Hebrew, and begins to exegete out Jesus Christ. Not to say that we didn't know Jesus was part of the Old Testament as it was brought forward to us. We began to see that, yes, but not like Paul. You could turn back to Galatians. Now, now you have a perspective, a biblical perspective of what had happened to Paul. And that's why Paul, you know, he, he says, look, this was not a gospel in verse 11. One verse and how much is packed into that, right? You know, it was not according to man. For neither I received it from man, nor was I taught it, like you and I were taught and have been taught under men. Many of you are taught because what? I open the word of God and you sit under the word of God and you're taught by me. You're taught by the word, the Holy Spirit, right? Ultimately, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conducts in Judaism. Now I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. In my own nations, being more zealous, right? I want you to think about that. Being exceedingly zealous um, over the traditions of my fathers. Please notice what words Paul used. There's no... Um, you know, there's no guesstimate of how this got there. It's the Holy Spirit. It's inspired every single jot and tittle, every word. Look what he used there. He said, I exceeded in all ways or in many ways of my contemporaries. But what did he exceed? The traditions of my fathers. What are traditions? Rituals. He exceeded in the rituals, in the traditions, in the religion of Judaism, but not in the relationship. It wasn't until he accepted Jesus Christ that he began to understand the relationship of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and more, I would say just as important, I won't say more, his position in that, being a child of God, a born-again believer. Certainly, righteousness was accounted to the Old Testament saints by faith, always, never by works. But Paul, being a completed Jew, began to understand this in a, in a way that many will never understand. If you had grown up maybe Jewish or some folks that have grown up Roman Catholic, I grew up Roman Catholic, very much into tradition and rituals. And then I got saved, and I came out of that. 
And I then began to understand the sweetness of relationship, of, of the true gospel, no longer of traditions of my father's, but of the real way, the real way of Christianity. You know, when I first got saved, I used to say Christianity is a a beautiful relationship in a religion, if you will call it that, a faith-based system. It's too bad most of the world has never tried it, and yet they call themselves Christian. It seems harsh now when I say it that way, but I wonder how true it is. How many people have fallen into a denominationalism or fallen into a tradition? It's not that I'm against denominations. But anything that comes between you and Jesus, anything, is idolatry, including rituals. For I do not desire what? Sacrifice. But I desire mercy and obedience. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Don't you love the Word of God? It just writes the heart. It writes the mind. Well, he says, I was more zealous. You can be zealous and misguided. I mean, Saul was certainly very zealous for Judaism, but he was misguided. And when he talks about the traditions, I mean, you could look at, uh, you can look at Philippians. I mean, just turn in your Bibles quickly. Look at Philippians here with me. I mean, you want to look at what Paul was like. Look at just Philippians chapter 3, you know. Verse 5, you want to look at his credentials, this guy. Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? A Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted a loss for Christ. He says, the best I was, the success I had in life. He says, you know what? I count it all a loss for Jesus. Can you say that this morning? I can. I can honestly say that. Anything I ever accomplished in my flesh or prior to, you know, really walking with Jesus, it doesn't matter. I don't care about it. I care about Jesus and my relationship with him and my desire that everyone is saved, right? That's all that matters. He says, I count it rubbish that I may gain Christ. And indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I am suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but, the right, but the, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and his power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Notice that again, second time we see that, the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed, what? To his death. Friends, life is not about winning the lottery. It's not about being rich. It's not even about being comfortable. It's not about having a very nice house. It's easy for me to say that. I have a nice home. It's not easy. It's not even about having a nice vehicle. It's easy for me to say that. I have a nice vehicle. It's not having nice clothes. Hey, it's easy for me to say that. I have very nice clothes. I have nice shirts and pants and uh, shoes. It's not about having a full belly. It's easy for me to say that. I have a belly that's full this morning. But in my, in my very core, 
I don't know how else to explain this. Forgive me for making it about me for a minute. Forgive me. In the very core and depth of my soul, there's only one thing that I care about more than anything. Yes, more than my family, more than anything. And that's my love for Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with, you know, wanting to have nice things. It doesn't mean that I don't wrestle. Paul wrestled. I wrestle. But ultimately, it's not my purpose in life. My purpose in life is to glorify Jesus Christ. Friends, your purpose in life, if you've been wondering what your whole life is about and what it's for, why you're here, and what you're to do, and and to look for that place where you're finally accepted. Maybe you've gone to school and you've never been accepted by your peers. You never fit in. Hey, that's okay. Maybe, Maybe you went to a job and you just didn't fit in. You never fit in anywhere. You never feel like you fit in. Friend, I want you to know you have a place where you fit in. You fit in in the family of God. You fit in with Jesus. He created you. The way that he, in your mother's womb, the way he shaped you, the way he anointed and touched your soul, the way that he drew you to him, that you would know him, that he could love you and protect you and be to you what an earthly parent could never be. You know, that's, that's a relationship with Jesus. That's special. You know, today, that is unique, unfortunately. God's intended it to be the norm. But that's become unique in this world of self-seeking, self-sufficiency, self-adequacy, and selfishness. Well, as we go back to the text, he looked at his former conduct and he says, you know what? It was nothing. It was nothing. The degrees, the accolades, it was nothing. I was zealous and misguided. But when it pleased God who separated, who separates us? God does. How? When we receive him as Lord and Savior, He does a work in us, sanctification. We're justified, and then we're sanctified. And we're ultimately glorified. We're receiving glorified bodies, but he separates us. He says, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. God calls men. Again, yes, a man or a woman may have led you to Christ, But God ultimately called you. God is calling every single human being. In these last days, we don't have a lot of time left. He's calling you now. He's saying, come home. I love you. It's okay, all the things you've done, it doesn't matter. Believe in me, and I'll wash that as white as snow. Come home. You don't need to kick against the goad and the pricks anymore, just like he told Paul. Come home. I have a place for you. 
I made a place in my father's house. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Come home. Do you hear that in your soul, in your spirit? He says that he calls him through his grace, not traditions, not traditions of the fathers, not of rituals, not of denominations, not of movements like Calvary Chapel, but one thing and one thing only, the grace of God. And that's why he deserves all praise. To reveal his son, notice this, I love this, underline it, in me. Not to me, not through me, in me. Jesus Christ, when you're a born-again believer, lives in you. No other religion or anything else you will ever study about religions in this world ever describe the living God living in you. Even Judaism doesn't describe God living in you. Remember, the Holy Spirit would come on you for a particular time, a unique work, and then obviously removed. As, as New Covenant, New Testament saints, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. You see that? To reveal his son in me that I might preach. You see, more is caught than taught. Your body, your life, your whole being is a living uh, epistle, a testimony to others. To preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. He says, I didn't need to go and reconcile this with a man. I didn't need to go and check with somebody else and say, well, what does all this mean? He says, I got on my knees and I went to the mediator, the only mediator man has, and that's Christ Jesus. And I asked him to reconcile it. And you know what he did? He said, I love you, son. I've called you to minister to the Gentiles. I've called you to suffer for my name's sake. I bet Paul was probably like, yep, thank you, Lord. That's real good. No, I bet you he was... Very joyful. To suffer for Christ? Oh, to be counted with his death that way? Oh, that's good. Because if you're going to be reconciled with life in Christ through, you know, through um, the resurrection, you better make sure you're connected and reconciled in death with him. Death to the old man, death to the sin, death to the nature. It doesn't mean we stop sinning. It means we no longer want to sin. We no longer desire to go back to that. You better be dead to that. If you're going to be alive to Christ, can't have it both ways. He says, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So back in that day, I go and I know our maps have changed. So back in that day, he's talking about how he went to Saudi Arabia. That's what he went. He went to Saudi Arabia as what we would know, you know, that area. Back then, Damascus was not part of Syria. Um, yeah, Syria like it is today. Back then, it was part of Saudi Arabia in the way it was laid out, okay? Then after three years, now I want you to think about this. Three years goes by before he even meets pa Peter or James, Cephas or James, right? I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him 15 days, but I saw, no one. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. 
Afterward, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Isn't that hard to believe? I mean, here the Apostle Paul goes back to Cilicia, goes back to, you know, where he was from in that area, and not a single person knows him that way. All they know is the hearing of him, but they don't recognize him. They didn't know what he looked like. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, now please understand, this is a second visit. The first visit we just read about in verse 18 was after three years he went up. Now in verse 1 of chapter 2, well, let me, let me just continue on to 23 and 24, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But the point of what I'm getting at is he's going to make another trip to Jerusalem some 14 years later. But let, let me go back to where we're. And as I was unknown to the face of the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified me in it. Why is he saying this? What was his whole point? Do you remember why he started on this? Go back to verse 6. Do you remember? The point is that the gospel is from God. It's not this alternative gospel that's being preached. He's saying, when I went in and I began to preach, he says, what, what is he justifying? It's not from man. He's going through and explaining, I didn't go through the discipleship boot camp like the other apostles did, like we have when we read you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount or we read the Word of God. He says, I didn't, I didn't go through that. I received a direct revelation. He's explaining the authority as well that he has as an apostle. And the point is the gospel is from God. And only by account, you know, that they should find this contentment in who he says he is and therefore listen to his authority and follow him and not this alternative gospel that wants to draw him, will draw all the people, excuse me, back into slavery of the law. Can you imagine? You know, that's, that's why I'm, I'm very careful. Uh, we have a lot of Messianic you know, Jews, brothers and sisters that are friends. They're born-again, completed Jews. But I'm very careful to when we start to take ceremonial practices and bring them back in in a way that we don't read about in the New Testament. And I know it's not of malice to do it. No ritual usually is, or tradition. You know, when the Roman Catholics turn around and, you know, have Mariology. I don't know if you know what that is. It's the study, it's the worship of Mary as the mother of Jesus. You know, the Bible said she was blessed among women, didn't it? She is blessed among women, but the Bible never called us to pray to Mary, okay? We're to, we have one mediator, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Why am I bringing this out? Because I want to help you understand that it's not that the Roman Catholics, again, I grew up Roman Catholic. My, my heart was never to put Mary over Jesus. My heart was never to worship her in a way that I, I was going to not worship God. That certainly was never my heart or any of the other things that were traditions and rituals, sacraments they used to call them, seven of them and more. I didn't know my word. I didn't know my scripture well enough at the time that, that all those things are Wedges or traditions, like saying the rosary. If you didn't do that, so many, you know, Lent, and you do, if I didn't do that, 
you know, then my relationship with God was distant because I didn't follow through on the things I was supposed to do. Do you see how, do you see how subtle it is? It's not an intention of ill will to hurt or to, you know, do something. I, I, look, I don't think, I can't speak for everybody. I know it wasn't in my heart, and for many Catholics I, I knew growing up with, it wasn't in their heart to be ill will towards worship of Mary or anything like that. Once we read the scriptures, we had a choice to make. And many of us said, no, Exodus chapter 20 says, I will have no other image or God before me. I will not bow down. I will not worship. I will not do anything but to the Lord my God. We begin, right? We begin to understand more of the word of God taught to us, and we start to have a response. What does he desire? Sacrifice or obedience? Obedience for Samuel 15, 22. Not the sacrifice at the sake of obedience. The tradition or ritual. Okay, you with me? So that's that's important here because the whole underpinning to the book of Galatians, initially in this first chapter or two, is really going and combating the Jew that gets saved as a completed Jew now, believes in Jesus Christ, and the Judaizer that's following Paul around. And oh, by the way, he's going to follow him to multiple churches. That's why it's foundational to understand what's happening contextually here, because then you, when you read the other letters, you begin to understand what Paul was undoing every time he went someplace. Very similar to what he wrote to, why do you think Galatians is called the concise Romans? You know, because it, Paul was trying to protect them in Rome from this very thing. He knew the Judaizers were going to make their way back to Rome saying you need the circumcision, you need the law, you need the ceremonial practices, you need the dietary restrictions, you need it. And Paul's like, no. As a matter of fact, as we're going to read in chapter 2, with the remaining time as we get going, Paul's going to deal with Peter on a very serious issue. And that's being a hypocrite. And it's so serious that Paul, now Paul in, in other ways was very considerate that we'll read right in verse 2, he dealt privately with individuals if there was a, an issue he needed to talk to about them or about Jesus, right? He, but with Peter, he actually addresses this publicly, and for everybody else that's around that publicly, that just tells you how severe it was that he had to deal with it right then and there. So let's, let's make our way into chapter 2 here, but that's why he's coming back in verses 23 and 24 and saying they glorified God in me because they realized that Paul's motivation was not to draw men to himself or to back to a law, but it was really to draw people to Jesus and to set them free. You can recognize the difference in a man when you talk to a man. You know the motivation of a man. We all can discern that to some extent. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, okay, right around the time of Acts chapter 15, verse 4, if you were following along in that way, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. He loves Titus. He thinks very highly of Titus. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, again, more likely, I think, if you go to Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we can see when he made that trip, but Acts 15 explains 
more of what's going to happen in this chapter. Let me be clear on that. But, but what he's talking about here, this idea of running or running in vain, is you can Bible thump somebody. <laughs> do you know what that means? You can slam them with this gospel, but you do it in a way that brings shame to them. You shame them. And, and Paul wasn't interested in shaming people. He was interested in get people saved. And if that meant he had to meet privately with them to help them, he didn't want to shame them in any way, right? Because if they were reputation, he didn't want to draw that out, but he wanted them to get saved, right? I think of Jesus doing the very same thing. Who'd Jesus do that with? Nick. Nicodemus, didn't he? He met him privately by night. Nicodemus wanted an audience with Jesus, and Jesus said, yeah, I'll meet you privately. And we know that in, 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 from the resurrection account, we know, uh, you know, what happened. Who was the one that came and asked for the body? The two of them, right? And Nicodemus was one of them. And he came and, you know, he helped get the body down. And Joseph of Arimathea, you know, he, right near where the graveside was at Calvary, came and, and, and put him in the tomb there. All right? So, you know, this is, seems to be applicable or allowed, or, or God seems to honor this. Yet not even Titus, now again, he loved Titus, he was not saying anything neg- negative, who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. Now why is that a big deal? Because Titus is a Greek. What's that mean? That means he's a Gentile. If he's a Gentile, what's that also mean? He was already with them before he went to you know, this Galatia, right? Because he's going to come up with them, Barnabas, Titus with me, right? As they went up to Jerusalem, right? 14 years later. Can I ask you a question? Who was at Jerusalem? James and the leaders of the church. Did any of them have a problem with Titus? Did any of them turn around and say, hey, you're disqualified, Titus. We're not letting you go out with Barnabas and Paul because you're not circumcised like they are. No, he didn't, did he? No problem with it. No problem with it as a Greek or a Gentile to not be under the law. He actually sent, they actually sent him out. He goes out. He says even he wasn't compelled to be circumcised, right? Not even Titus. What's the point there? The point was that even the religious leaders weren't doing this. This is important to set this because when we see Peter in verses 11 through 16 come back in and Paul says no return to the law, you have to understand this wasn't something that was like, oops, this was already established. This was already understood. No, the Jerusalem Council hasn't happened yet in Acts chapter 15, but this is still well understood and adopted and accepted because Peter had already had that or will have that vision. Remember when uh, at Cornelius's, before he goes to Cornelius's house, he drops down the food. He says, oh, Lord, I can't eat. It's not, it's not clean. He says, don't call you know, unclean what I call clean that way. What was he talking about? It was an illustration, a picture. The Gentiles. And then what happens? He goes to Cornelius' house. He sees the Holy Spirit fall on him. And by the way, some of the religious leaders were with them. And they say, can anybody deny this? And no, no, we can't. The Holy Spirit clearly fell on these men. And he says, well, that proves it. That, that the gospel is going forward to the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, you have the Jewish people, right? And then everyone else was considered Gentile. So what's that mean? The gospel is going forward to the world. Okay? This is all important in context. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. 
And he tells you why this whole thing started to rise up. Who came in by stealth. They didn't come in with like a, uh, a hat on that says Judaizer or a legalist, right? It, it, it was stealth. It, it, you know, things didn't appear as they were. To spy out the liberty, isn't that interesting? Which we have found or which we have in Christ Jesus that they may bring us into bondage. There it is. That's their job. That's what they want to do. There's an intent there, and the enemy is using them. And what is he using them to do? To bring them back into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. Praise the Lord for that. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says, but we were not fooled. Right? The word went forward. And if you could use one word here to describe Titus and Paul in this moment, and I will say Barnabas, although Barnabas will have a failure moment here in a little bit. One word. Wholeheartedly, and here's the word, convinced. There was no doubting it. If you've ever wondered, and I've talked to brothers and sisters, even in the church here, that have come out of legalistic backgrounds or backgrounds where they felt like they had to keep the law or the messianic practices or something like that. I, I love to bring them to Galatians here. And I love to see the look on their face when the tears begin to flow. I can think of a brother that I, I usually sits right there as I look down in front. He would normally be sitting right there. And this was his experience. I mean, literally comes in to meet with me. His dad had uh, brought him in to talk to me. He's an, he's an older man, got kids and the whole thing, but his father had been coming here. He's got to come talk to Pastor Matt. Comes in. He sits there. I think he thought I was going to argue with him or something, and I, I didn't want nothing to do with that. I said, come on in. You know, he sat down. We opened our Bibles, and he said, see, this, that, and I brought him right to Galatians 2. And I just sat back, and I just so I thought, wait for it. Wait for it. The joy is about to just, just going to pour out of this man through tears and everything. And he looked, and he's like, whoa. He's like, man, there's a freedom. Hallelujah. To watch a brother get set free like that. I mean, that's powerful. I sit there, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I see a lot of things. I, mean, I'm, I always am amazed in those moments because it's like that light bulb goes in, and they've been like, I've been set free. Or people that come out of a reform bent. Maybe they come out of a reformed church. Look, uh, we can fellowship with people that are reformed. That's fine. It's not something we have to divide over. You know, we're, we're, we don't agree with a lot of that. You know, we take more of a biblical approach, doctrinal approach to certain things in different passages than some of the reformed brothers or you know, sisters might. But when you start to see that, you know, I can think of a sister in the fellowship. She came out of a reformed men, and uh, she was always struggled with the fact that She'd look around to some people, you know, in her, she works in a school, and she'd look around and she'd say, man, some of these kids are going to be destined for heaven and some of these kids are destined for hell. That seems so unfair. Why would a loving God do that? And she just wrestled with that for years and years until I opened up the scriptures with her. I said, let's read the Bible in context with good hermeneutics. And we opened our Bibles and we read line by line and we went through these different things. And again, the tears start flowing. And she says, man, hallelujah. God desires to save everyone. Yes, that's right, he does. 
And it brings a great joy. It brings a great joy. That's what Paul had. Paul had this gospel that he's given, a gospel, a revelation from Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus, when he came to explain the gospel that was already given, he came to explain the word of God that the religious leaders had twisted for power or for influence or to draw men to themselves, to make it a club, you know, an elite club, you know, where you had to worship these men, these rich men. You know, instead of just being able to love God and come as you are. And, and you know, he spent all this time, and, and they, they were, well, how can we get into heaven if these really rich leaders can't? He says, I say to you, it's harder for a man, what, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? He says that. I'm paraphrasing. But the idea, he says, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. You know, he, he, was, he was turning it upside down. He's turning it on its head. Their understanding. What do you think Paul's doing right now? He goes in and he gives the gospel to these Galatians. Many of them are Jews. Many of them are Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. They're getting saved left and right. Thousands, man. Thousands are getting saved. They're praising God. They're excited. Then some guy comes in and goes, eh, you're not really saved. You really aren't keeping the law. Are you circumcised? Because you remember, proselytes, Jewish men, excuse me, Gentiles that were becoming Jewish men had to do what? Even if you were an adult. You had to get circumcised. So they come in and they start saying that, well, you, you're not really saved. You, you, don't, you don't have, you're not keeping the law. You're not of the father that way. And well, what did they mean by that? They're talking about Father Abraham and the covenant. You're not of the father. It was very common. We'll read it in a little bit in Scripture. But it's this idea, you know. And, and Paul looks up and he, and he says right here, he says, He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for one hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He was confident. He looked at all these men and said, and women, and says, you're saved. You placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Don't you go back after that law. But from those who seemed to be um, something, whatever they were, I love how he writes that, It makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to me, something added nothing to me. Do you like how he wrote that? He wasn't wasn't concerned about other men and their reputation. He wasn't concerned about his reputation. Some of these men, whoever that, you know, the, the Caiaphas of the world, right? The, the high priest, all these. He says, I didn't need to argue with these men. I don't care if they're prominent, you know. Paul could have said, hey, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He doesn't even do that anymore. Remember, Remember he counts it all lost for Christ. So he doesn't come back and sit back and go, hey, hey I'm of the school of Gamaliel, you know. I happen to know this. You ever met people like that? Hey, I... Uh, let me ask you a question, and then they, you know, to, to make, you know, stump the chump, if I can say it that way. Forgive me if I offend somebody when I say it that way, but stump the guy, stump the girl, you know. Why do, you, why, why do they say that? Because they want to, well, let me, you know, and, and what are they doing? Are they drawing you closer, or are they shaming you? Do they make you feel less uh, about yourself because you feel dumb and you don't know the scriptures because they've got 50 of them memorized, and they got the law down, but guess what? They don't know a thing about the love of Jesus, They may know their Bible better than anybody else, but they know nothing of the love of Jesus Christ. You know, we've met people like that. There's people like that that have come into this this church. You know, Calvary Chapels, we seem to attract, you know, a lot of intellectual, a lot of people, because we do go through the Bible, we know our Bibles, right? Uh, But they don't last very long. 
They don't last very long because they come in and the body's very tight and the body's very well taught here. And so, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, his word, he teaches well here, you know, he's faithful, God. And so people like that, they'll wash out. Why? We don't want them to. We want them to get humbled and come in and be part of the family. It's not a desire that they would leave. But, but why does it happen? Because they start going to all these people, hey, do you know, you know, and next thing you know, people are like, you know, people see right through it. So what are you trying to prove? What's missing in here that you feel like you have to boast or you have to try to, what, what's, what's not content here? Where's the insecurity coming from? Paul was going to have nothing to do with that. He didn't care about those men like that. He says, I don't know. Maybe they're somebody, maybe they're not. He goes, but I know this. God doesn't show any favoritism to man. That's a fact, Right? Now, again, he's not telling them not to have a... He's not saying, well, that means that you can do whatever you want and you're not under the authority of the pastor. He didn't say any of that. But he's also trying to say that if there's going to be somebody that cheats is contrary, including Paul, the word of God, you're not to turn around and follow that if it's contrary to Scripture. And isn't that what this alternative gospel was doing? It was trying to teach contrary to Jesus and what he was suggesting or not suggesting commanding, commandments and statutes. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, that, who is that? That's the Gentiles. And the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, that's the Jew. It's not that they were absolute. Both of them spoke, as we know I mentioned earlier. You know, Cephas spoke, Peter spoke to um, Cornelius and Gentiles like that. So you did see that, but the primary calling was Paul was to the Gentiles and you know, Peter and James and everyone to the Jews like that. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me Barnabas, the right hand, and, and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. So him and Barnabas means he agreed. He said, yes, they, they acknowledged, yes. We agree. Pillars meaning that they were leaders within the movement. And it seemed right to them, the Holy Spirit. So he says, yes, go out as the Lord had sent you, right? That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. And and we saw that because Paul was not at all lacking to take an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? As a matter of fact, we read that in 2 Corinthians, that he, one last thing he was saying to them is, hey, don't forget that. that. That's why it was on my heart about Ecuador, you know, with the, the Madrid family bringing that to us is because we're never to forget the poor. We're never to forget those that need food. We're never to forget those, whether it's in our neighborhood, in another country, wherever, right? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can transcend miles. And that was the one thing you remind him. Don't ever forget the poor like that. Don't forget those that are in need. We're, we're, we're warned not to do that. Let's just finish out the chapter here. I know we may go a little over, but let's finish our chapter. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, that was his home church. That's Paul's home church, excuse me. Let me say it correctly. I withstood him fate to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, Remember, that was not Paul's norm. What was Paul's norm? 
he was to, in verse 2, to go to men of reputation to do what? To go to them privately. So now he has to withstand them face to face, publicly, and all the other leaders that are there. Now, why is he doing that? Well, first of all, what's happening? It looks like there's a potluck. We call them potlucks today. What were they called back then in the first century? They were called love feasts, agape feasts. What happened at an agape feast? Typically, you'd gather, and then they would have what we would celebrate today, communion. They would have communion at the agape feast. At the end, they would celebrate communion, remembering the work of Jesus Christ, looking forward to his second coming, right? As proclaimed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So it was a time of joy. It's not supposed to be a time of division. Remember, Paul later on will write to 1 Corinthians. Sorry, he will write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. And even again, warning them in 2 Corinthians, they weren't to do what? They weren't to be divisive. They weren't to be divisive. They weren't to get there early and eat all the food and the supper and not leave anything for the who again? The poor. Isn't that interesting? Keep it all in context that later on he's going to write to the division or divisiveness of this church in Corinth that those people shouldn't do what? They shouldn't neglect the poor, the very thing that the, the Jewish leaders, the pillars, Peter, James, and John, had told Paul, and Paul says, I'm eager to do as well. So this was well understood. That means if they understood it, that means there was a movement or a work against that. Right? Oh, the poor don't matter. We just want to cater to the wealth. Where does that sound familiar again? In religion. The religious leaders of Judaism were doing that. Remember Jesus came to them? We talked about that this morning, right? Do you see how this is all connected? And, and what Paul's doing is he's laying a foundation for the church. Notice with me that so far, and, and you know, we're going to read through you know, the six chapters here, but I don't read anything about programs. He doesn't talk to me about, you know, the Christian um, program institute or the, you know, the programs of where we need to have uh, bounce houses or we need to have all of these things to attract people to come to church. No, they didn't even have children's programs. They didn't start children's programs to what, 50 years ago? Or something like that, 50, 60, 70 years ago, go back in church and she can look at it. They didn't separate it. They all came in together. They sat like that together. That's why people are freaking out. What are we going to do, you know, when we reopen the churches? We'll do what we started to do a week before. The children will come in and sit. That's what I did. I sat at a hardwood bench. <laughs> My butt half asleep, you know, <laughs> for... The 30 minutes, you know, or whatever it was. At the Catholic Church when I was young, you know, you sat there with your family. You know what I mean? It, it was just the way you learned to mind. You didn't jump around. You didn't cry. You, you got the look from your mom or dad. They give you that quick look. You knew what that meant. It meant settle down. Because if you didn't settle down, you were going to get settled another way, right? Yeah, times have changed, but it shouldn't have. It shouldn't come to that. We should allow our children. Jesus, after all, didn't he say, don't prevent the children from coming unto me? Why should it be any different? It shouldn't. Well, my point is, is that look at all the things we've added to the church today that it's not supposed to be. 
And that's why these churches are having more difficulty today because they built all these programs and they're like, but we're financially struggling now. Well, of course you are. Because you, you began to see what it's like when you stopped entertaining and the movie tickets weren't for sale anymore. Compared to people that love Jesus and the word and whether they're sitting at home or whether they're here physically, they know it's the work of God in the body of Christ. They're being fed and taught just like you all are. The word of God's going forward. They know that their, their agape love offerings is part of their worship. They know this is all well, you're all well taught. You know the word. You know the word. We don't have to turn around and do things like that. You know? This is why it's so important. I'm so glad we're seeing this today. Because I know there's many over the years that have come and said, Pastor, you know, we're, we're a medium-sized church here, a little smaller, medium-sized You know, Pastor, we don't have some of the things these other churches have. You know, they have an arcade in the church. Or, or they have a children's program that's out of sight, man. They, they get to go play, and they got this outdoor uh, uh, gymnasium, and they can go outside, and they can, you know, ra- you know, play around on the gymnasium, and they can do all these things, and... Look, the kids need to get their wiggles out. They should go outside after they're done with their study, you know, and have fun and play games. Kid, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But we don't need these fancy things. They didn't have any of that in the early church. And the church was multiplying like wildfire. Because it was Jesus. And he never leaves anybody wanting more. He never leaves anybody wanting more. When you teach Jesus and him crucified, you don't come away wanting more, needing more. Well, you always want more of Jesus, but I mean, you don't come away wanting more of something else. You, you see the difference? And I, in a way, I'm glad we're seeing this because it's a separation of the wheat from the chaff. Those that are true believers in Christ, that understand, look, it's never been a requirement. They've never said, we need that, we need that. They didn't care if it was, you know, this building's a beautiful building the Lord's given us to worship in when we can come back here. But it didn't even matter, did it? At one time, we met in a, a hall. Before that, we met in an old railroad or an old hardware store. You know, most people drove by it looking at it going, that's a church. But you know what? God did amazing things there. And God's doing amazing things now. He's doing amazing things as you're sitting in your home. He's doing amazing things in your heart, isn't he? He's touching you. He's speaking to you. He's loving you and he's teaching you. He never forsaked you, did he? And he never will. And so Peter comes in. There's this love feast and what's going to happen? For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when he came, he withdrew and separately separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Do you see what just happened? A bunch of the religious leaders come. Peter's already made trips to Antioch before, the home church that Paul's at, you know, and what do they do? Instead of Peter coming in and sitting down with the Gentiles because Peter's not under the law anymore, he comes in, he kind of waves to him. But what does he do? He beelines right over to the table where the Jewish circumcised men are sitting. What do you think that did? Why do you think this was so severe? What do you think that did to the people that were sitting at the Gentile, the Gentiles that were sitting at the regular table? They don't call it a Gentile table. They just, because remember, the Jews were the ones that had to separate when eating like that because they considered the Gentiles unclean. Gentiles do nothing about that. 
Anybody who came in, grab a chair. Come on, let's have some food. It was a love feast, an agape feast, and they were going to celebrate communion. So here Peter walks in, walks by where he normally sits, snubs them, snubs them all at that table, goes to the other table, and Paul says, no, we're not going to have this. We're not going to have this kind of junk. Well, we turn around and we start creating the superiority of a, of, of a Jew or a Gentile or this or that or of who's of uh, Peter, who's of Apollos. Now, granted, I know this wasn't Corinth yet, but it was already brewing. Division. Right in the beginning of the church. Right in the first plant in Galatia for the Gentile. Already it's brewing. The enemy doesn't stop. He doesn't take a break. He's going to try to destroy and destroy and destroy. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to have it. It's not going to happen under my watch. He says, Peter, what are you doing? As he looked at the rest of the religious leaders, he looks at Barnabas. Barnabas, what are you doing? They withdrew and separated in fearing those who have the circumcision, treated as second-class Christians, the Gentiles were, or worse, not as Christians at all, because they weren't circumcised. Look what he says then. He says, he separated himself from the fear of those who were circumcised, and the rest of the Jews also played what? The hypocrite. They did the same thing. You know what this word means? You know what the word played means? It's actually a Greek term used for an actor. It means when you would go into a theater and you would see an actor put a mask on and they would play a part, that's the Greek term used here. Now, I know some of you are sitting in here. You know, we have a couple people that are here, very few people at the church here, you know, our worship team and then, the, uh, the, you know, Pastor Steve and the sound folks, they got masks on. I'm not talking to you guys this morning with the masks on, all right? You know that. This is talking about somebody who is acting one way, you know, or saying one thing and doing another. There's no, nothing more detrimental to the church than hypocrisy. And it says, and the rest also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. How far Peter's fall, Peter of all people should know, right? Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 10 through 16. You know, you can go back and read it. Look at verses 44 and 45. He knew. He already knew. God had already testified. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew, notice that. He's not attacking Peter for being Peter. He says he wasn't doing what? being true to the gospel. When it comes against the gospel is when Paul has to do something about it. Not because he didn't like the way Peter was behaving or his attitude or his character, because that all certainly was not appropriate, shunning or withdrawing for somebody like that. This isn't a, a regard that we get to stand, you know, stand up and rebuke somebody one to another. Notice it was also the leader within the church, Paul the apostle, the pastor there. It wasn't one member of the flock standing up and, you know, chewing out another member of the flock like that. We don't see any of that. Matthew 18 makes it clear if there's a problem with a brother or sister, you're to go to them privately first. You don't have to come to the pastors first. You're to go to him privately. 
and obviously take somebody with you and you, it escalates up to eventually to the pastor because that's all you know that's the, the the authority of whether this is something that's a sin in the church that needs to be removed from the church that person or or there's going to be a reconciled heart there right that's the whole reason Matthew 18 lays it out that way but Paul doesn't do that for that reason he says no he saw that they were not straightforward, underline that, about the truth of the gospel. What were they doing at that moment? What were they teaching through their lives and their behavior? What were they teaching? An alternate gospel. The very same thing in verse 6 he accused the Judaizers of. More's caught than taught. You see that? More's caught than taught. It's how you behave and what you do, not just what you say. You know, I tell the pastors that all the time. You know, we talk about those things. You know, are we living it out? I, tell, I talk to the elders. Are we living it out? The people leaving, leading ministries, are we living it out? Are, are we saying one thing and then, and then we do something different? Because if we are, then we're hypocrites. And that's an alternate gospel. I said to Peter, and, and that goes for me, by the way, they're, they're more than happy to come to me and say the same thing, and, and, and I want that. By the way, please, I'm not saying that as though they, all of us in leadership have that open door with each other, and it needs to be that way. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles, which means he wasn't under the ceremonial Jewish rites or law any longer, and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature, what does that mean? He means we who were born under the law grew up knowing the law. Observant Jews, if you know the term observant, they were observant in the ceremonial law. He says, you're no longer observant. I'm no longer observant, Paul's saying. Why are you now trying to compel the Gentiles to be observant when we're not observant, when these certain Jewish leaders aren't around? Right? Who we know, who are Jews by nature, we are not sinners of the Gentiles, right? In other words, you know, we know that we didn't have that prior, no longer observant that way. You know, he's not saying that, I guess he's making the point that he knows that the law, because that's where he's going to go, that the law can't save. The law didn't turn around and remove sin. The law convicted sin. The problem's not the law. The law is righteous, the problem is you and I. <laughs> we don't measure up, and we never will, and that's why we needed Jesus, right? So who are the Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, but by faith in Jesus Christ? You see that word justified? This is the first time Paul uses that term. It's a legal term. It's a term rendered when a verdict is given. It means declared righteous, and it means that God himself, on this paper, if you ever want to know how you know, God himself declared it in this passage that those that are believers in Christ by faith are justified, declared righteous, legal verdict decision before God. God's weighed in, and God said, it's completed. He said it on the cross, teleo telestai, it is completed. He's declaring it here. It's the first time Paul uses this term, direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You as a believer, you're declared righteous. 
That's it. You can't say, but, what about? Nothing. That's it. God Almighty, in his throne room, the court had met, the jury weighed in, God said, I'm God. <laughs> I'm sure Satan was up there in the jury going, you know, we really think the, you know, you know, accusing the brethren, right? Brothers and sisters. And God said, those that are in the Son have life. Those that do not have the Son of God does not have life. Where's that from? First John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Right? It's a declared verdict, declared righteous. Very powerful here. By the works of the law, it says you're not declared by that, but by faith in Jesus Christ, right? You can look back at uh, Romans chapter 3. Let's, uh, we're over our time, but let's just, yeah, I'm not, I, the Lord's speaking. Let's, let's listen to the Lord. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are under sin, all under sin. As it was written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under the lips, whose mouth is in full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law did. It brought everybody into judgment, guilt before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh is what? It says it here and again. No flesh is justified. No flesh is declared righteous under the law or any works for that matter. In his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law tells you about that. It's only through the righteousness we receive through Jesus Christ. It's only through, as it says back here in Galatians, faith in Jesus. And I'm so grateful to our Lord and Savior for that. There is no other way. That is the only thing that I consider exclusive within the church. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one narrow way. Well, he goes on to say, but if we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Certainly not. That's heavy, right? Did you, did you hear that? He's saying, did Jesus make them right? He's actually addressing a question that probably some of the religious leaders, the Jewish men in authority there, were probably wondering. Paul's kind of, sometimes Paul does that. He'll, he'll address a question even before it's asked because it's like through discernment, he already knows what they're thinking through the Holy Spirit. So he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. What is he saying? He's saying those under Christ, you're still doing what? We still, we, we don't want to, but what do we still do? Sin. We still sin, right? So does that make Jesus a minister of sin then? If we're under Jesus and we're still following him, does that mean that Jesus is a minister of sin? Because that's what they're thinking. And he says, certainly not. Of course not, Right? For if I build, again, those that which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Right? What's he saying there? He's saying that if you take and build up or build again, well, what's he mean to build again? If I take the law or I take away to God the law for, you know, the Old Testament, 
uh, Jews. They were looking at that as a way. They, they, they identified with the law, not necessarily with faith in God or faith in Christ, which we read in Hebrews is what just, you know, justified them before the Lord. It's never been the law that justified anybody, right? It was always faith in, in, in Jesus Christ, faith in God, right? For I build again those things which I destroyed. I make myself a transgressor. He says, you know what's interesting? If I go back to a law, or I go back to a ritual, or I go back to a tradition, he says, instead of sinning less, I actually sin more because the very fact that I go to something is sin rather than going directly to Christ and only Christ. Do you see that? That's heavy. That's why I didn't want to end the chapter because it's very important in context. That's what he's saying here. Everything he's been building up to in this foundation, he says, that's why you can't go back to the law. You can't go back to these ceremonial practices. When you try to do that, unless God commands it specifically, right? In Ezekiel 38, we're not here. We, or sorry, Ezekiel 40, we're not here, right? We know that there will be a new built temple, right? And that they will conduct ceremonial practices at the, that temple again. God has commanded that. And that's for the Jew. We're not, you know, we will come back in the millennial reign. We'll be part of that. And that's a time. But that's not during the church age. That's not during the church age. That's, that's really up to Revelation chapter 3, right? If you're, if you're keeping the, you know, the, 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 the watch or you're calibrating it with the, you know, eschatological or, or the eschatology of the time in the Bible, it's really Revelation 1 through 3. After these things, is Revelation chapter 4, and that's when we start to get into the kingdom age or the great tribulation and then kingdom age, the millennial age, okay, the millennial reign. But first, we're in the church age. We're still here, right? The church is here, aren't we? Even if we're in our homes, we're still here. So, you know, because the church isn't the building, right? It's the, it's the men and women, the believers in Christ. He says, I make myself a transgressor. He says, I actually sin in that by looking to something else um, as a way to God as a way to draw closer. Boy, that spoke to my heart so many years ago. You know, I used to have a statue my grandmother gave me. And it was one of the few things she gave me right before she died. And it was a statue of Jesus. And it was a Catholic kind of statue looking thing. And uh, I kept it. And I remember I talked to Pastor Chuck Smith about this before he died, before he went to be with the Lord. And I remember saying, Pastor Chuck, what, what do we do in situations like this where it's something that means something to me because it's a, an, a, a sentimental object. But at the same time, and this is a personal thing. Everybody's got to do what the Lord shows them. At the same time, I looked at this. You know, I moved it out of the bedroom and I eventually put it into the garage before I talked to Pastor Chuck about this because it was kind of working my way through it. I just didn't have the, uh, the courage to do it because I wasn't sure what I was doing, and I love my grandmother very much. And my grandmother certainly didn't mean anything sinful by giving that to me. She didn't understand Scripture. She didn't know Exodus 20. I didn't know until I read it. And then I began, ooh, what do I do now, right? Well, I, got, I had to get rid of it. I had to get rid of it. Because I'd look at that, and every time I looked at that, for me, it reminded me of kneeling down and praying before God, praying before the statue. No different than a Buddhist or a Hindu going before their little Buddha, or, you know, a Buddhist going before his little Buddha, and he, he prays to this man-made object. 
Everybody's different. That was, that was me. And Pastor Chuck says, you have to do what the Lord shows you. He, but he was very clear to say, you know what Scripture teaches. And I felt like it was a choice. Am I going to obey Scripture or am I going to... Am I going to obey what my heart is telling me to do? Because right now they're vastly different. For me and my house, I'm going to choose the Lord. I had that same experience when I got saved. You know, my wife, we had a, quite a large collection of movies, DVDs, VHS back then and all this stuff. We went through, opened up the trash bin. You know, some people, I'm going to sell it. Well, that's great. You're going to put the filth out so other people can get it. That, that's a great thing to do, you know. I, I thought about that, and, and I would have done that too, by the way. So anybody that did that, don't feel convicted, because I was going to do the same thing until the Lord convicted me on that. I had actually asked the Lord about that. That just shows you where I was at. And I turned around, and I pushed it all in the thing, and I, I threw it all out. You know, the smut, all the junk, some of it questionable. It's funny, my wife and I sometimes go to watch 80s movies that we have fond memories of with the kids, only to 10 minutes in it have to shut the movie off and go, I can't believe our parents allowed us to watch that. Wait a minute. Our parents? Where's my personal responsibility? I thought that was okay. The language, the attire or lack of it. You see, when we take anything and we try to put it as a way to draw us closer to God, a way to God, whether it's the law or anything, we're actually transgressing, we're sinning. And that's, that's why we're not against denominations. What we're against is the fact that any denomination in particular takes any one aspect and takes it to a place it was never meant to be because then it becomes a ritual and a tradition. And that is a transgression. Do you see it now? Now you know why we say that in the Calvary movement. It's because it's based on the Bible. Verse 19. For I, Paul, right, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. The law is a killer. The law kills. The law doesn't bring life. You know, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, now he's not saying that he, he lives in his flesh. He's talking about his nature, right? You know, I live by faith in the Son of God. You know, the old man is gone. You may think you look alive, but you're never more alive until you're with Christ. He said, who loved me and gave himself for me more than death. I did not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law. He said something's really wrong with that because then Christ died in vain. And uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 through 42 tells us there is no other way. Isn't that a good word this morning? That's just one chapter, and a, well, a chapter and a half of part of uh, chapter, chapter one and two. Boy, it just clears so much up. Hard to believe we're already going to be moving into next week, Lord willing. Uh, you know, Galatians chapter three, where he's going to continue this. And now he's going to explain in great detail what the law does, how the law brings a curse, and what was the purpose of the law, that it was, it was actually a tutor. It was something to draw us to Christ because we would realize that the law bought death. 
we realize there's nothing wrong with the law in itself. It's us. And so therefore, if we can't do it through the law, we need to find salvation somewhere. And that somewhere is through someone. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? He's our Lord and Savior. So today, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, ask him to be your Lord and Savior right now with all diligence, with all heart and mind, because you don't know if you have another moment. And you don't want to look back and say, I didn't know. Oh, no, you know now. There is only one way. And yet, it's been poured out as a gift of grace. And I thank Jesus for his love for all of humanity to give his life, the Father to give his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe should not perish. Hell is real, but have everlasting life. That's what awaits us, believers in Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Share this message with all your friends, those that are unbelievers. You never know what word from God's word will be that seed that opened the floodgates and the fountain poured forward. And out of it became the living water of Jesus Christ in the soul of the man or woman or child. So friends, share this out on your Facebook, on your YouTube, on your uh, church app, on all the things you, you have now. All these ways you have as you're quarantined in your home to get the word of God out. There is no excuse. God bless you all. I'd like to pray. And we're not going to have a closing song because we're over time. Are we over time? It's the Lord's time. I think we're right where we're supposed to be. Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, you go before us and that your ways are perfect, that you, Jesus, are perfect, and that sinful man, wicked man like me, Lord, can come to you and you make everything right. I believe in you, Jesus. I trust you. Lord, it doesn't mean I don't struggle. You know that I struggle, Lord. But through my struggles, God, through my weakness, you are always made strong. God, I pray a blessing on the flock, that you would bless them, Lord, heal them and keep them. Lord, I pray that you would allow your face to shine upon them. They'd experience your perfect peace, God, that as they would go through this week, wherever they are, working from home or at their establishment, wherever you have them, that the perfect love of Christ would be about them and your countenance would be upon them. Bless them, Lord. I ask and we pray all this in your holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. I love you. Maranatha, keep looking up. Your redemption draws nigh. God bless you, friends.